0: Welcome, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I am your co host, Cass Clark, and I'm joined as always by my lovely co host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we also have a special guest. Tyler would you like to introduce yourself and tell our fans a little bit about what you do and who you are
1: hey thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here so I am the managing editor at wickedhorror.com and I am also a staff writer at Dread Central had past bylines in Fangoria Room Org and Scream magazines and across the internet I am just
2: grateful to be here with you two wonderful people yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you coming.
0: Thank you. And I, I know our listeners can't see this, but there is an amazing Chuckie Down in the background that I would like yes. to just audibly point out.
2: <laughs> Thank you to the
1: Sci-Fi Network for that. That showed up as kind of a surprise and like made my whole month. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's really cool.
0: Jesus, this place is bad tonight,
1: man. We had a run in the mass murder center. Coming to my fiesta? Yeah. yeah, I'm off early.
2: Curfew, you know. <laughs> What's that werewolf movie with E.T.'s mom in it? The howling horror straight ahead. Oh, now that's in poor taste. What? If you were the only suspect in a senseless bloodbath, would you be standing in the horror section?
0: So, today we're talking about meta horror. So, Ryan, do you want to kick us off with a 101 deep dive into some of the best meta horror we got?
2: So, the concept of meta fiction oh. is fiction that comments on the tropes and style of storytelling. In the story itself, it can kind of be traced back at least until Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales in 1387. In Spain, you can see it in Don Quixote and other works, but it's not a very popular mode really until it blows up in Latin America with Jorge Luis Borges in the 1920s. And he turns out some great stuff between them in the 1960s. And when he kind of gets like translated into English, along with uh, Juan Rufo that's when the American boom of postmodernism starts and that's probably where most American audiences will be most familiar with it where metafiction gets really popular and there's a few films in that time but there's not a ton until after Screams like in 1932 you get the old Dark House which is a comedy has some elements of parody in it and some elements of meta stuff in 1948 you get the first of the Abbott and Costello meet movies with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein which kind of rejuvenates Universal Monsters and it's followed by four sequels and you skip to 1932 1960 from there basically um, where you get Peeping Tom. Some people argue is the original slasher. Sorry if it's a spoiler. I know it's from 1960. <laughs> he has a camera with a knife on the end of it, and he kind of just kills people with the camera. So, and you get it from the the point of view of the camera. And It's very much uh, trying to examine the audience's relationship with the violence on screen, which a lot of meta horror will do going forward. 1980, we get Cannibal Holocaust, which pillories the way documentaries are made, especially about like the tribes of Africa and Latin America. And just in case you want to watch that one, I just want to call out that it has a real footage of animals being killed
1: mm. mixed
2: into the, uh, the fake people being killed. 1987, you get *Return to Horror High, which is a film team making a movie about real murders at a high school where they happened. 1992, you get Man Bites Dog, which is like a documentary crew follows a killer and eventually they begin to kill with him. Very much like in Peeping Tom, examining like our culpability in watching these movies. In 1994, we get like a real breakthrough with A New Nightmare by Wes Craven. Freddy Krueger movie was like kind of the first meta slasher. Featuring members of the cast of the original Nightmare and Elm Street being brought into the fictional world they created. And then we get Craven's other meta franchise in 1996 with Scream, which will be our first breakout film. We'll circle back and talk about it a bunch. And then 1997, Scream 2. 1997 also had Funny Games. Have y'all seen that one? Oh uh-huh. <laughs> yeah it, it fucking hurts <laughs>
0: it's it's dark
2: <laughs> it's uh crushes our love of violence it had an american remake by the same director in 2007 michael haneke 1999 the blair witch project 2000 the book house of leaves by mark z danielewski um, 2000 scream 3 2000 also had the shadow of the vampire which is a horror story with the making of Nosferatu, imagining if there's a real vampire. 2001, there's Mulholland Drive by uh, David Lynch. And then all, you'll see so, like all the other slashers start doing the meta thing. So 2002, Halloween Resurrection, that's the one with the reality TV crew coming in. 2004, Seat of Chucky, where Chucky and Tiffany invade a movie being made about them. 2006, you get Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is a classic meta slasher. 2007, My Name is Bruce, where Bruce Campbell as himself fights a monster who thinks he's Ash from the Evil Dead. It's
1: really funny. Like, I mean, it was very much written... With him in mind for
2: him, tailored to his sense of humor. So if you like that, I think you'll love it. Nice, I'll check it out. 2010, we get Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is a classic horror parody. It flips the script, making the rednecks the good guys who just, the college kids keep dying around them. It's a good one. 2011, Scream 4, which is a good underrated sequel. 2011, the Ubaldo Terzani horror show, Italian meta horror. 2011, Human Centipede 2. Um, which is inspired by the events of the first movie in, in film. And then 2012, The Cabin in the Woods, which is the inspiration for our friends over at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. 2015, you get Human Centipedes through the final sequence. 2015, you also get our second breakout film, The Final Girls. 2016, Director's Cut, which starred Penn from Penn and Teller. 2016, Found Footage 3D. Filmmakers are now the stars of the film, they're filming. 2018, one of my favorite recent movies, One Cut of the Dead, which Mm -hmm. is absolutely incredible. Um, Everyone should see it. 2018 also had You Might Be the Killer, which is inspired by a Twitter thread, which is just a kind of cool piece of film history in the first place. 2019, there's porno, where a demon inside of a porn tape gets released inside of a movie theater. Scare Package, which is a lot of fun, anthology, a, a video store employee kind of learning the ropes while a bunch of crazy stuff happens. And 2022, this year, we had Scream, which we're going to call Scream 5 because it's too confusing. Don't you know the rules? What rules? Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Uh, I have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully
0: survive a horror movie. And that leads us to our first breakup movie, Scream, Ugh, written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven, beloved by everyone in this podcast. I would love just to start yes. off with, What was your first memory that you can remember of watching Scream for the first time? Hmm.
1: I think for me, probably, I I think I saw it in college. It was out when I was in high school and I desperately wanted to see it, but I was, I think I was like in driver's ed, so I couldn't drive myself (laughs) and my parents wouldn't take me to see it because they hated horror movies. Mm -hmm. So it ended up just kind of getting tabled until I was in college and then I rented
2: it on VHS and just kind of had my mind blown.
0: What about you, Ryan?
2: I was in grade school when it came out, I think, but like, so I couldn't see. It until I, was, I think I saw it when I was 18 maybe but it was like a, a playground thing. Like we'd go and we'd talk about Scream or Scary Movie and I would never know which one like the serious one or the parody. They're both kind of parodies but uh, I never knew like which one was the real movie and which one was the fake one the kids talked about. It. But it scared the shit out of me. Just talking about murder on the playground in like fifth grade. <laughs>
1: Did you guys know that Scary Movie was originally the title for Scream, like the working title?
0: Yeah, I love that. I wonder. Do we? Do you know why it changed? Where they're just like it's too generic. Well, or...
1: Dimension released Scary Movie, the movie, and so I think it was actually perhaps changed because of that. I'd, I'd have to look up the you know the release to be sure. But I I suspect it may have been changed to allow Scary Movie to use the title because it was probably more fitting, you know, for a straight up parody as opposed to kind of a a
2: serious effort that is self-parodizing. In the newest Fangoria, they have an interview with Kevin Williamson. He talks about that a little bit, Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember he wasn't happy they were changing the name. I think it sounds like he still doesn't like the name (laughs) Scream, but like they're not going to change it for Scream 6.
0: <laughs> people would riot. I would secretly kind of love that if they were just like scary movie six, <laughs> just to fuck with people. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw it was at my cousin's house. It was my older cousin, and he had the VHS. And I remember I was also not allowed to watch scary movies as a kid, so I remember sneaking in to his room and watching it on his VCR when he wasn't there. And then I got caught and got in trouble. But did it was you like you had to finish? Not the first time. But then once I already started watching it, he was like, okay, I guess you have to. <laughs> <laughs> like, so like I eventually did go back and watch the whole thing. It scared the crap out of me. I was scared of like blinds for a while as a kid because I could always feel that like looming sense, like ghost face is gonna be in the window. Terrifying. Still love it. I think it holds up amazingly after all these years. For anyone who's, I guess, been under a rock and has not seen screen. <laughs> Uh, Screaming in 1996, the premise is pretty straightforward. A year after the brutal murder of Sidney Prescott's mom, Maureen Prescott, teens start getting sliced and diced around the small, quiet town of Woodsboro by someone or someones wearing ghost face masks. And the movie itself is kind of a mixture of a fun whodunit. There's also comedy. It's definitely a teen slasher. And it 100% feels like Wes Craven started stretching out his meta horror muscles with New Nightmare. And this one actually like gave it the full room to stretch his legs. So he wasn't just like a New Nightmare. He was looking at the use of Freddy and like fan culture's reaction to liking Freddy more than really any of the other characters in the slasher franchise. (laughs) And in Scream, it was more about just making fun of the genre expectations of specifically teen slashers themselves. So what's one meta aspect of the film? Do you think that still holds up on rewatching?
1: Just one aspect? I know.
0: <laughs> all of them. Uh, just maybe just one to start. There's so many good ones. <laughs> I think it's
1: kind of perfect. I mean, I think everything about it holds up, but if I had to pick one, I would say maybe just the way that it established the template by which all future meta horror films would be compared. I mean, I think it it strikes the balance perfectly between like wink wink, nod nod, we're making a movie, and also actually completely terrifying you. Mm -hmm. um and and i think that a lot of movies that have done that maybe have gone too overzealous with the jokey aspect and i think that the balance and the tone are absolutely perfect for me
0: yeah what's one thing ryan that you think about the meta horror i love
2: that they acknowledge that the rule is if you have sex you die and i Mm -hmm. think it's like two minutes later sydney has sex yeah <laughs> and i like that like because because fuck that trope i mean women should have sex and enjoy it
0: yeah i think for me the trope of like the killer always comes back i think is just something that they've continued throughout every single film every time you think of is dead guess again and people that don't can get into some trouble in these films uh, so that's probably my favorite aspect just because it's something that we talked a little bit about this on our episode about jump scares, but it's like so expected that the killer won't be totally dead and will come back. But that the way that Craven directs it, it's still shocking and surprising when it does happen. I think it's just a testament to like how good he was uh, as a director. Some other fun tidbits about Scream that I love just thinking about and like chatting about. So Drew Barrymore was originally supposed to be cast in the role of Sidney, but of course was like, mm, not for me. I'm going to be Casey instead and just thought it was way more fun to play with and love the concept of dying first in the movie and letting marketing just roll with her being the biggest star, because at that time of when the movie was being made, she was probably the biggest name connected to the film franchise and to that film in general. So what do you think that Nev Campbell brings to Sydney That is just iconic and something that no offense to Drew Barrymore, but really just like lands the role.
1: I would have loved to have seen Drew Barrymore as Sydney, to be honest. I mean, (laughs) I don't think that she should have been. I just I think that she made the right decision. I think it was a good call. And I think it completely subverted expectations. I would love to see how she would have played Sydney, just out of curiosity. But I think I think that Nev Campbell brings kind of a, a vulnerability to the role. Also, she's just a real tough cookie and a survivor. I couldn't see Drew Barrymore being quite as fierce. Like I, I think Nev mm-hmm. Campbell brings a ferocity to the role that it's hard for me to picture Drew Barrymore having
2: brought if she had realized that character like 96 was like the year of nev campbell so i think the craft came out that year too
0: yeah and party right. of five was just starting to I think out too yeah
2: to that point she was a no-name mm-hmm. it was like that was the year she was just became like a huge star
0: yeah and i think um following up what tyler was saying about just like her fierceness i think a lot of the time people will critique that like sydney as a character is doesn't technically become a final girl until Scream 2, which is a view to have. But I think from the get-go, even though she's going through a ton of trauma and processing a whole bunch throughout this film that we see play out in many different ways, I think one of my favorite bits is like the first time Ghostface calls her, automatically she's just like, who are you? Like she's not, she's like ready to like not fuck around. She's not playing games. She's not like, unwittingly getting to these like the situation like other girls in prior slasher she's like i'm ready to just like figure whatever is happening and just get the hell out of the situation uh which i personally love about her and i love the energy
1: also what about when she says not in my movie and then yes (laughs) i mean i feel like to argue that she's not a final girl when she does that i mean that's a pretty badass baller move yeah so i i think that for anyone that felt like she didn't achieve final girl status like You know, at at that point, what is your argument?
0: Right. (laughs) Like she literally created her own ending for the movie. And also I love, I love this version of her putting on the ghost face mask, like, and like playing the same game that was played to the other characters, literally breaking those rules and playing by her own rules, I think is just so so well done and something that still i don't really think we've seen it pulled off as successfully in other films that try to do meta horror
1: careful this is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare
0: not in my movie so one thing that stuck out to me this time around that i was actually surprised about as i started getting a little bit obsessed with like hank loomis and like what his role is in the franchise. It's something that it's in this movie. It's a very small scene where we see him. We just see him with his son Billy Loomis, and he's bailing him out of jail because he's a lawyer and he is able to like clear his son of murder charges despite his son like being near a murder scene and just being very creepy with like the worst things in the world. <laughs> um, and
1: also having a cell phone.
0: And also having a cell phone. <laughs> the audacity, sir. In the later on in the franchise, we also find out that. Hank Loomis was worked at the same studio in Scream Three as a lawyer that protected the studio from any of Maureen's sexual assault claims at the time that actually did happen. But I've always just been very curious about like where Hank Loomis is, especially. Uh, I don't want to spoil anyone who hasn't seen has not seen Scream Five, but I will say that I just have questions about where Loomis is in this world and what is going on with him because I feel like it's such a quiet thing. And also, I mean, Sydney's dad is just gone and locked in a closet for the whole film which makes me laugh every time like there's such a lack like latchkey dads in this it's not for once thankfully it's not like some in air quotes bimbo because I don't love that term but like some bimbo mom that just forgets she has children or something (laughs) it's like these like horrible dads that are just like not at all caring. that like kids are getting murdered around them and like
1: do you think that could be kind of a nod to the absentee parentism of the 80s Reagan horror movies? Yeah. Because because I kind of wonder I mean nothing about Scream is unintentional.
0: Yeah I think you're right I do think it's purposeful like all the parents are pretty much absent like the closest thing they have to like parental figures are technically Dewey Riley (laughs) and (laughs) Gail Weathers (laughs) like that they're basically like the weird parents of all these all these teens in these movies uh, which is is interesting too like the law enforcement and media being her
2: parents is there a parent in the entire Friday the 13th series other than Pamela Voorhees there's a baby in Jason Goes to
1: Hell the mother or father or someone I've only seen it maybe twice ever but I think that one of the baby's parents is present at some point okay so to answer your question not really (laughs) (laughs) yeah because that's kind of a stretch.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Take that back. Uh, part yeah. seven, uh, is, is Tina the main character, the Lar Park Lincoln character? Her mother yeah. is the main character. Okay.
0: How good for Tina's mom. Someone's around.
1: <laughs> Her mom plays a, a main role in that movie. But aside from that, very few. And I think that had something to do with kind of like the anti-authority mm. you know, stance during the yeah during the Reagan administration, because I think parental figures were seen as a representation of authority. So it was sort of kind mm-hmm. of muting that whole thing, at least as it's, as it's been explained to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And I already mentioned David Arquette's Dewey Riley, but it's like his physical comedy and his, only saying boyish because it's the words he used but like his boyish charm is just so charismatic still like his ability just to do that i'm doing like a shoulder shrug right now a little shoulder shrug of like i don't know miss weathers like it still gets me every time (laughs) we don't really get to see male ingenues you know so i feel like that too was like intentional of just having this like softer version of this police officer which I think is delightful (laughs) do you have any Dewey thoughts or like feelings you need to also share
2: (laughs) so uh I watched the movie like two weeks ago to get ready for the the new one and I noticed the first time do you all see the hat on top of Dewey's computer in the police station scene Mm -mm. no I I don't think so I couldn't read the text but there's two boobs coming out of the top of the hat and there's something like I love titties written on the top or something. I couldn't read it because it was too fast. But I swear, if you go to the police scene, it's right on top of his computer. It's the first time I noticed it. They had fun designing the sets for this movie.
0: I fully believe he would own a hat like that, Dewey Riley, but then also never have the gall to wear it in public.
2: Yes, (laughs) Someone gave it it to him as a joke.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Favorite kill in this film?
1: That's a good question. I think probably for me it would be Casey just because the first time you see it, it comes out of left field. You don't expect it. And then it establishes kind of the, the template by which all Scream film openings would therefore follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's perhaps the most iconic, maybe not just in the film, but the entire franchise for
2: me. I want to just add to that a little. I think the, the moment where her mom can hear her on the phone as she dies is more brutal than Anything I've seen in any other slasher film, I would argue. Because it makes it feel real, like her mother hearing it.
0: That's actually, yeah, surprise, surprise. I agree, too. (laughs) This is my favorite kill scene. But what's really interesting, too, is, like, Craven really had to fight for that section of the kill scene to stay in the movie. Because originally, they wanted to edit out the scene where Casey's parents actually see their bloody daughter. They wanted to end it where it was, like, there wouldn't be as much of the, like, gasping on the phone, which is still so haunting, to, like, literally hear your, your daughter's last breath that sticks with me so much <laughs> than the actual after scene two of being like the carnage because in a lot of the slashers sheer sure, people get killed but the camera pans away we don't really watch people witness that violence and have that and that's what they were really fighting craven to not have in his film and i forget the quote but his response was basically just like that's not his style of doing slashers and if someone's gonna die then like We're gonna have to see how this actually affects people. And that's the scary part of of slashers, not the killing. It's the aftermath is the scary part, which I love.
2: I just want to throw out my favorite kill. That's not my favorite, but I think it's the best scene in the movie. Yeah. My favorite kill has to be Tatum in the the garage door. (laughs) what? And I feel like the Tatum kill is the real like Tom Savini kind of slasher kill you expect from the genre. Oh,
0: you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Yeah, it sucks too, because after watching scary movie, it really just parodies that so much that it makes it a little laughable, but I I just wish that Tatum could have survived. Of all the characters, I know. I mean, I know she doesn't, but her going to death by like a cat door and getting electrified just feels like so like unfashionable for Tatum. Yeah. <laughs> like I want her to be a bit more like, like glorious. <laughs> like this is how she goes. <laughs> so... In The First Scream, our ghost face killers are Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker. Do we think even after knowing and rewatching the film that this reveal holds up as well as did the first time that you saw it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the, uh, I wrote an article for Wicked Horror about who's stabbing in every scene. Mm-hmm. Although, Cass, do you remember the name of that British podcast you sent me where they interview Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich?
0: Oh, The Evolution of Horror.
2: Yes, The Evolution of Horror had an episode where they interviewed them. And yeah. uh, one of the things that uh, Matthew Lillard points out that really made me laugh, uh, Matthew Lillard is 6'8". <laughs> and on the podcast, he said that Skeet Ulrich was five foot. That's not true. Skeet Ulrich is actually six foot flat. But Ghostface is always one height. And that kind of holds oh, true yeah. in every Scream movie, like even in the new one. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Y'all seen it? Oh, yeah.
0: Let's just not spoil but that. But they're
2: very different <laughs> heights, those two people
0: yeah i think that's
1: deliberate though almost yeah. don't use so as not to give anything away Ghostface is played by a short
2: character like they yeah. don't
1: really want to give you even though it's cheating a little bit i think it's
2: intentional no yeah and i do love it i think the two killer reveal is great because it completely fucks our expectations because we're all sitting there the attack on you're supposed to be guessing who's mm-hmm. the killer who's the killer and then there's two and so you were always half wrong and it was always obvious that skeet ulrich was the killer just like the, the look in his eyes, the way he carried himself, everything about the him screamed. <laughs> yeah, the hair grease just <laughs> screamed killer. And so like the great way to get rid of that was to, there's two killers. It's not just Skeet. What do you think, Cass?
0: Yes, I think the reveal does still hold up. Uh, and one like really funny aside that I noticed this time around that I don't think I noticed the last time I saw Scream was when you first see Billy and Stew at like right after the big opening sequence and the camera pans down to like Woodsboro High School they're wearing almost identical shirts like it's almost the same cut huh. the same color like kind of sweater vibe It's just almost like from the get-go they're like in uniform <laughs> I'm like really creepy seeing that and it's not quite the same color but it's a pretty close color to the same sweater that Casey's wearing which is equally creepy oh, yeah. like imagine like the thought process behind that like let's wear matching shirts after our kill and and make it looks like who we just killed (laughs) like that conversation I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for
1: have you guys ever seen the meme of Casey and then Barbara Crampton and I don't know I think it was from beyond or something like that with the same kind of bobbed haircut and very similar sweater oh no I haven't seen the meme but yeah I can imagine that from beyond Barbara Crampton look It's almost kind of uncanny how similar they are. And people have kind of speculated maybe it was an intentional sort of homage. I mean, of of Mm -hmm. course, it could just be complete happenstance. But it's interesting to think about that may have been an intentional nod.
0: That'd be I mean, that'd be amazing. Oh, the tidbit I wanted to share about Matthew Lillard was that he auditioned originally to be Billy Loomis. But the casting director (laughs) said that it wouldn't be believable for audiences to think that someone like neb campbell's sydney prescott would make out with him <laughs> <laughs> and, and like apparently like oh, every man. once in a while it's been obviously years but every once in a while just to be a, a little bit of a dick matthew a little re- bring it up again and like the, the next round of interviews about scream movies so every single time skeet has to reply to it and he's just like please get over it i know you're joking but please <laughs> Oh my goodness. Do you have any uh, final questions and thoughts, Ryan, about Scream before we move on to our next film? I
2: have a thought on Matthew Lillard. um, (laughs) And I think his performance actually makes the movie. Mm -hmm. I think the way he like goes, as he leaves the room and says, I'll be back is hysterical and like movie making and then the line is like are you gonna tell my parents (laughs) that was spectacular and i have a question for y'all would billy and Stu have spared casey if she answered the the scary movie questions correctly no no
0: I don't think so.
1: One of the screen movies, I think someone says, you know, you or you get it wrong, you die. You get it right, you die. Like, I think someone actually makes a point to say that isn't it fun? It doesn't even matter. You're going to die no matter what. We're just screwing with you.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that in their minds too, this was like their big opening kill, like in the movie that they were making. She was going to have a a gruesome big statement death no matter what. I would have asked her
1: another question. You know, they 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 would have stumped her eventually,
0: I think. And then they would have killed her. And yeah, I also agree that I love Matthew Lillard. she said
1: everybody dies but us, everybody dies but us. We gonna carry on and plan the sequel. Cause that's facing baby. These days you gotta have a sequel.
0: One of the few men that I had crushes on as like a teen was Matthew Lillard. And like I don't understand how some people don't that he's charming the way that he can just like ratchet up his like I can't think of a better word for it than like mania but like his ability to all of a sudden be like laughing and crying at the same time and that just like 110 energy which I guess some people find grating. I just think that's like very talented and I've watched everything he's been in so I love him I love slc punk yes I have the dvd I watch it all that
1: time you know, there's a lot more punks in the west four years earlier but there was also as many posers posers were people that look like like punks but they did it for fashion and they were fools they'd say anarchy in the uk you see posers anarchy in the uk what the Fuck's that what good is that to those of us in utah america it was a sex pistol thing right they were from england they were british that's what they did they were allowed to go on about anarchy in the uk you don't live your life by lyrics i haven't oh. seen that what is that kind of about Being a fish out of water is like a punk rocker in Salt Lake City Mm -hmm. and, you know, just kind of living that lifestyle and also sort of growing up in spite of yourself, in spite of your... Mm you know, desire to live that life forever, you know, that everyone kind of eventually sells out, which was sort of a message that I hated, but it's also kind of the truth.
0: Yeah, and Devon Sawa's in it too. His character does way too much acid in the film. <laughs> <And it's, laughs> it gets really funny. But yeah, it's, it's a wonderful film. It's like, yeah, it's about the punk lifestyle. And then in a lot of ways, too, it's also just about like living authentically, finding your own ways to like, be who you are, even if it doesn't subscribe to a, what is a trendy version of whoever you're trying to be, which I think is pretty cool.
2: As Henry Winkler dismisses school, he says, your principal loves you. Yes! And that just cracks me the hell up. <laughs> I cannot imagine my high school principal ever saying
1: that. I think that's genius. Also on that note, The Wes Craven cameo in his scene is like the greatest gift he could have ever given to horror fans. You know, even now that he's gone, which, you know, is something that devastates me every time I think about it. You know, we have that that we can look back on. And it's just so funny the way that he's just kind of this crotchety curmudgeonly janitor whose name is Fred. You know, who's uh-huh. wearing a Christmas sweater and a fedora. It's mm-hmm. just such a like loving send up and a wink and a nod. And it's very scream and it's just perfect.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. It's not like not too much attention is drawn to it. And if <laughs> if
1: you were just a casual fan necessarily, like piece it together the first time you watched it, certainly any diehard or even like moderately enthusiastic fan would pick up on it. But, you know, someone that just likes scary movies may not you know immediately piece that together and uh, i love that because it's not you know hitting you over the head with it but it's certainly something that any dedicated horror fan is going to see and be delighted by
0: that's an excellent point scream does that so well it literally does like nestle its little easter eggs throughout so that when you go rewatch it you find stuff again and again and hopefully yes. the, more, the more you get into horror more you find it and it's just so delightful but it never feels like you're out of the joke or like you're not like cool enough or smart enough to get it
1: there's way more subtle references than that i mean that's that's definitely one of the more obvious ones Mm -hmm. uh but but nonetheless very enjoyable and very much just like a cup of warm tea when watching it because it it just makes me feel connected to Mm -hmm. craven as a human and a director and You know, someone that I've loved for as long as I remember. Almost as long as I remember since I, you know, was kind of kept away from horror movies in my younger years.
2: Dallas too. Cass, were you allowed to watch horror movies as a kid?
0: No, that's why I had to sneak into my cousin's room to watch Scream. I wonder if somebody did like
2: a survey of like horror journalists, horror people now. How many of us were allowed to watch it as kids and how many of us were not? And how many of us worked in video stores? Because I worked in-
1: Yeah, two different video stores, and I think William Bibiani, who bylines all around the internet, used to be an editor at Crave. I think, like the entertainment editor, and uh, I think Whitney Seibold, who's uh, William's counterpart on a podcast, and uh, just a bunch of us are for uh, you know ex-video store employees, and I think that's fascinating. Either of you guys ever work in a video store?
0: Uh, I worked at an FYE in the mall.
1: <laughs> that's pretty close. That's pretty yeah, close. It's pretty yeah. close. Yeah, I'd say that counts.
0: Yeah, (laughs) got to stock shelves, the joy of that and looking at the covers and and imagining what's inside. I I actually really miss that. I wish that like someone would open up uh, a store where it's just like the cassettes, like of like DVDs and and VHSs and you just get to read them and look at them and just do that for a day. Like I would have a ball. I would just be sitting on the floor like reading them all. Hey, do you guys know the way to Camp (laughs) Bluefinch? So we're in the
2: movie. Final Girls came out in 2015. It was a part of a deluge of things with "Final Girl" in the name that kind of still going on. It's just kind of everywhere. Like uh, Stephen Graham Jones had a book, "The Last Final Girl." Um, Grady Hendrix had the Final Girls Support Group this year.
1: Well, wasn't there an Abigail Breslin film called "The Final Girl" also around the same time?
0: Yeah, I
2: believe there was. And I think Riley Sager had a novel just called "Final Girls" or
0: "The Final Girl." I know in the movie you're supposed to die, but that doesn't mean you have. And a like fun fact too, it didn't come to fruition because I think it got, it ended up getting bought and then got stuck in development hell. But Jamie Lee Curtis signed on to a final girls TV show. And the whole premise was about (laughs) basically going from town to town and getting all these final girls together, making like a band of final girls and, and trying to get them out of those situations. Why do you
1: have to tease me with these little <laughs> tidbits that I can never enjoy?
0: I'm sorry. I know. I know. It's like, once you hear it, you're like, that's fantastic. It sounds yeah, like. I want that. I kind of still want that. So Jamie Lee Curtis, please resurrect it. Manifest. <laughs> hey, take your
1: AirPods out and go make that movie, JLC. <laughs> I girl.
2: In the film, Max, played by Tysa Farmiga, loses her mother, Nancy, played by Melon Ackerman, in a car accident. And then when she goes to see a screening of her mother's film, Camp Bloodbath, fire breaks out and Max and her friends are sucked into the film. And so it's kind of like a Groundhog Day situation where they're trying to find a way out as the killer from the film stalks and murders them along with the characters from the original film. That's the, the gist of the movie, real people inside a slasher movie how you like
1: it? One of my favorite modern horror movies. There's really not a thing about it that I would change.
0: I'm always surprised with how it always makes me cry and I don't cry very <laughs> easily. I think it's very heartwarming. And I think a lot of the time in horror, we make these movies that just <laughs> destroy us with like existential dread. <laughs> that is really nice. That has like a nice message about like processing trauma and survivor's guilt and grief. Uh, and it gives me the warm fuzzies. So I really like it.
1: The mother-daughter compare- relationship is so genuine.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent.
1: I mean, and, and that's so rare to find in a slasher film. But I mean, their their bond is is so touching. It's just so well done. Do we compare Cry
2: Notes? What scene?
0: Give <laughs> <laughs> me a second. I was like, wait, what?
2: <laughs> what? At what scene do you cry?
0: I cry when the mother is dancing at the end of the film. And like, she has this look where, oh, it just gets me even thinking about it. She just has this like steely look of just determination, but also like a hint of like terror of just like, I'm doing this, I'm going to do it. But holy shit, I'm about to die. And then I'm like, oh God. And I just start crying.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that like, kind of the second time I noticed, It's definitely like, I feel like the strip teases are the most emotional moments in the film. Mm. Cause the mother's doing a strip tease to attract the guy which is the scene I cried in too. Definitely not gonna leave you hanging there. Tyler, did you cry? No.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it takes a lot
2: to make me cry <laughs> my other favorite scene is tina's striptease where she has to rip off the, the duct tape for the oven bits with her teeth i thought both the scenes were, were great um not the emotion you're supposed to generally feel during a striptease do you all know the backstory of the movie at all
1: oh about the the screenwriter being the yeah. the son of the actor from the exorcist yes and also having watched his dad die on screen and then writing a movie about a young woman who sees her mother die on screen was, was really kind of like art imitating life. The
2: co-writer that you're talking about is uh, was two writers, um, but one of them was Joshua John Miller, who's the son of Jason Miller, who plays Father Karras in The Exorcist. And I do, I love that concept. I think we're kind of hit on it with Scream too, of reconnecting with a loved one through film. It's like mm-hmm. you were saying, even if Wes Craven's dead, we can still see him as Freddy in Scream, and it kind of like gives you a spark of joy so if you were in the movie would you have warned the fictional campers or do you let let them get axed
1: well i think the argument was that you don't deserve disturb the natural order of things right yeah Hmm. i don't know i would like to say that i would just be stoic but i'm pretty sure that i would warn them (laughs) yeah
0: i think i would warn them I think I'd be curious to see what happened. Like, even if I warned them, would that van just pull up again and then we, we just start this all over? Like, that's one thing I. I well, I'll let you c- continue, Ryan. But that's one thing I still have, like, as a question at the end of the film, and we know sort of what happens, but I'm still just like, well, wouldn't this all just start again? <laughs>
2: let's let's go with that. Um, at the end of the film, what happened? We're gonna go there eventually.
0: We uh, well, I'm- we're in a double feature, in the. Oh Jesus! Okay, in <laughs> uh, in the first plane of existence in this movie, we go to a movie theater to see Camp Bloodbath double feature. The teens are transported into the film, and after the first film ends, and some survive, some don't. The sequel begins, which means that maybe after they survive that sequel, they can survive or go back to the their original plane of existence. Or it could just be a huge, really sad loop where they may have to go back to the (laughs) camp, bloodbath, and do it all over again and just keep on doing it.
2: (laughs) Tyler, what was your read on the the ending? Uh, I don't really have anything to add. I think Cass kind of nailed it. How do you all think it plays into, because the movie's about, in my reading at least, the movie is about grief Mm -hmm. and the grief of losing a parent. And I feel like that's why we're doing the
1: the repetition. Oh, that's a really good observation because grief is kind of a never-ending process and something that you just sort of continuously relive.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd like that take on that. I don't think I saw, saw it initially, but now that you're saying it, I think that makes total sense.
2: No, absolutely. I, I think that's brilliant. This is a film that kind of threads, it's a difficult needle between comedy and drama. I think it may be those more than it's a horror movie even, even though it's a horror frame. Mm. Um, So how well do you think it handles balancing the comedy and the drama?
1: I think it does a, a perfect, a near perfect job. It does both exceptionally well. And I don't think one overshadows the other.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I think there's, there's some characters that are purposefully caricatures. Kurt, the counselor played by Adam Devine, and he has a kind of humor and a kind of vibe to him. But right when he hits that limit of like being peak Adam divine. <laughs> he's killed <laughs> off so it's like the film is aware of that balance of just being like okay now we're done with this we're like we literally played this out as long as we could uh so to me it kind of feels like it's obviously not improv comedy but it feels like a an improv sketch sort of in that way where it's like they play a bit as long as they can but then they know when to stop it which I think is really hard to do
2: I think I read uh, a lot of those lines were improv
0: I'm not surprised <laughs>
2: Um, But I think he did a great performance. I think the film was full of great performances. Do y'all have favorites?
1: I really love uh, Mullen Ackerlin as the mom and the camp counselor. I, I think she does a great job of playing that character and also sort of playing a person at two different stages of their life, even though one's a character and one's really her. I just think she does a great job of bringing both of those to life in in a believable way.
0: Yeah, I second that. I think that her in general as an actor is just so underrated. I think she has such range uh and can just so quickly move between being like a bit lighthearted and silly on purpose and, and playing that like comedic note and then having some really like harrowing moments to nail.
2: She was great, especially the lip syncing for the <laughs> oh yeah. I think that's is that song Beth Davis eyes.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: She's great. Um, I think my favorite performance though was Angela Trimber as Tina. Mm-hmm. I think she was absolutely <laughs> hysterical. Oh Tina. Uh, did you guys
1: notice there's both a Nancy and a Tina? Which is I did not, but yeah, which is a pretty cool nod to nightmare on Elm Street. How
2: long do y'all think you would survive in a slasher film?
0: In this slasher film or slashers in general?
2: A slasher in general.
0: Ugh. Um, I think I'd either make it to the last act and survive. Or I would die like in the murky middle because I would go back for someone and then I would get killed. Like Those are my, the only two ways it ends.
1: I took a BuzzFeed quiz once that said I would make it to the end. And those are very
2: scientific. That's true. That's true. You can't stop the BuzzFeed. I think I would die very early. Oh, really? Yeah. I think I would be like, I'm stealing Camille Nangiani's joke, but I I would die before I knew it was a slasher movie. I'd investigate the noise. (laughs) Sheila O'Malley from Roger Ebert argued that this movie has the true energy is Breakfast Club versus Breakfast Club. And I want to hear y'all's thoughts on that. Hmm. Can you elaborate on what that even means? The real film isn't the escaping the killer. It's the real people versus the counselors. Or the 2020 slasher victims versus the 1980 whatever slasher victims.
0: Oh, I guess in the sense that like, what is she arguing that they both have archetypes and it's like archetype fight archetypes yeah not really fighting so yeah
1: yeah, they're more collaborative
0: yeah <laughs> that's true yeah uh, I guess no then I guess I don't God, agree
1: godrogereber.com get it right <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right how well does the horror work for you the final Girls.
1: it works great for me considering that they're people that you care about so you don't want to see them die and it's gut-wrenching but it's yeah. also appropriate because it's a horror movie. But, you know, the, the way that it makes you invest in the characters is is really kind of next level. You know, they're not just cannon fodder. They're people that you care about. So I, I think it's even more horrifying than what we're used to seeing, like in a big way.
0: Yeah, and I think just building on that, I think what makes it scarier is the characters are self-aware. Like even the, the movie... Oh, <laughs> Uh, the camp bloodbath counselors, let's say it that way, <laughs> the camp bloodbath counselors are aware of their impending death. And so are all the teens that jump into the movie with them. And that's something that I think makes it more scary. It's almost almost in that way, sort of like final destination where like everyone's aware that like death is coming really soon. And that makes it more frightening because you have to watch them yeah. wrestle with their choices.
2: How do you even that with like the, the ridiculous nature of some of the deaths?
0: It'd be too dark. I think without the comedy. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's there as like a kind of a palate cleanser. And it's also like not what the film is about. Like the film is like, at least for me, it, it deals more with like, I think survivor's guilt is the, the one of the big, big themes of this movie because Max is still processing surviving the car crash that she was in with her mother. And although it's not explicitly stated, the way that the Camp Bloodbath film plays out I always imagined as the viewer that during that car crash, uh, we don't actually see the, her mom die. We don't see the final moment. But I always imagined that her mom maybe like pushed her out of the car or did something like hmm.
1: heroic. Something like helpless. Yeah. yeah,
0: I got that strong sense that that happened. And that's the, probably the, why it's been on top of just dealing with losing her mother so hard for Max to move on because we see how much she doesn't want her mother to sacrifice herself in this like fictional film that it really makes me think yeah, it that happened.
1: That's a great observation. And I think you're right. You know, I, I bet if you asked the screenwriters, they would validate what you just said.
0: And speaking of screenwriters, uh, just because we didn't mention it, it's co-written by M.A. Fortin and his romantic partner, Joshua John Miller. And I think they did a fabulous job. I just want to shout out their names.
2: I know they romantic partners. That's really cool.
0: Mm-hmm. There's uh, actually, there's one, I guess to add on to that, one thing I do appreciate real quick when gay people are out to write stories, they can like uh, do... <laughs> gay jokes in funnier ways. One favorite part of the film is when, when Chris is talking to uh, counselor Kurt and Kurt is just trying to make like a homophobic joke. And he's just like, dude, don't my dads are gay. And he's like, oh, that's funny having two dads. And he's like, no. Uh, and then watching how awkward Kurt feels is like the humor. <laughs> like it's, a, it's pointed back at like him, which I thought was just amazing. So also
1: yeah. the way Kurt says something like, you know, being gay is just about going to disco clubs, and having, <laughs> you know, having like, you know, multiple partners or some, something along those lines is so yeah. funny. I and mean, then he's like, it's actually a pretty great lifestyle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah, definitely.
2: Do um, so y'all have a favorite kill? Speaking of Kurt.
0: It's funny. Cause like as much as the, the kills are fairly bloody in this film, they don't really stick with me as much. I think the one that does stick with me is when Gertie dies because I know why I'm laughing it's dark it's really dark she, she gets like stabbed through a bookcase and is bleeding out under a bookcase and then like Nina uh, Daparev's character basically lights everyone up is with firecrackers and fireworks and they explode so that, that one definitely sticks with me because it's just a big moment epic it's it is epic <laughs> yeah what about you Ryan
2: I think Tina's death when she turns around to try to run then trips on the line they set and falls <laughs> face first into the the bear trap um, was just extremely uh, brutal.
0: Poor Tina. Tina is such a mess. I feel so yeah. bad. Hopefully the film resets for her and she just gets to do it all over again.
2: I think she does, right? I think for the film characters, it's got to reset again.
1: Yeah, I mean, the movie has to end somewhere, but it seems like the implication is that probably they just continue, you know, in that, in that time loop. mm mm-hmm. But it
2: does seem like they're having like a lot of fun until Billy arrives, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I would take that trade off to live that life repeatedly, but it seems like a fun party until everyone <laughs> gets murdered.
0: There's a. Have you ever seen The Endless? Either of you?
2: No, uh, I have not.
0: So I would recommend it. Uh, it's on. I think it's still on Shutter, and it's it's basically all about living in time loops. But it's about people that stumble into this area where there are time loops, but. Depending on where you are in this uh, place called Arcadia, the time loops are either long, like 20 years, or there's one time loop that's like a second. <laughs> um,
2: brutal. It's
0: so it's like it's a really fun movie to think about that in time loops because it's like, oh God, just don't, don't put me in the second one. Maybe the 20 years one would be fine, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's really
1: good. Have you two ever seen Mind Games, M-I-N-E games?
0: I don't think so. I'm gonna Google I don't it think now. So.
1: It's a really interesting take on time loops that uh, kind of deals with how we demonize mental health.
0: Oh, cool. And
1: uh, I really enjoy it. I, I don't know that it got like the best critical response, but I think it
2: is very underrated and I, I really enjoy it.
0: Oh, cool. I'm just going to watch check it. Check it out. Yeah.
2: So the final girl dies unintentionally in that fiery car wreck <laughs> yeah. in the, the first camp bloodbath and the, the living characters, the human characters go on to, to Camp Bloodbath 2. So does one of them, like what happens at Camp Bloodbath 2 without Julie's final girl? Good question.
0: I don't know. (laughs) If you watch until the credits roll, we do see, uh, I think it's just Adam Devine being Adam Devine, but <laughs> he's he's still improving as the character, Kurt, uh, in his wheelchair, <laughs> talking about how his penis is broken in three different places. So, like, going on that, like, you can just be like, I guess they all survived and are somewhere yeah. also in the hospital. I <laughs> don't know.
2: So I want to steal one of your questions about Screamcast, because it was a good question, I want to give you credit. How do y'all feel like the meta elements in this are commenting on the... The tropes of slasher films.
1: How do we think the meta elements in The Final Girls are commenting on slasher film tropes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's, I mean, I think at its core, it's probably kind of a deconstruction of them, and maybe kind of the ridiculous nature of slasher film tropes, and, uh, you know, perhaps how they're kind of nonsensical, and also maybe even how people have sort of created Rules that don't necessarily even really exist or weren't intended to exist, because if you talk to like John Carpenter, he'll say, "Well, I wasn't actually setting out to just kill off everyone that wasn't a virgin. They just kind of had their heads head in the clouds and were thinking about sex and not survival." And and I think maybe it's kind of a send up of sort of the ridiculous nature of said tropes. But beyond that, I don't know exactly what the commentary is. So if you have something to add, please
0: do I'm just thinking of your wonderful answer (laughs) so I'm gonna I'm gonna build off that for a second so John Carpenter called up Bob Clark the director of Black Christmas and asked him if he was to make a Black Christmas 2 what would he do and then he basically said oh Billy would you know maybe be captured then he would like escape uh, an asylum and then like Rain terror in a small town. And then that's how Halloween basically like how the first the first seeds of the script in the film Halloween started is like, cool, nice, nice idea. So I like that idea of like how a lot of the times these stories, it's just happenstance. And because one thing works really well in a horror film, it then gets repeated and repeated and repeated to the point where like we're not quite even sure why so I guess maybe this is where the commentary is like baked in like if you were to ask someone why these rules or these roles have to be in place I think a lot of people would just not know how to answer aside from just realizing that they're following what the genre has done up into this point Uh, a reason why a film like this or film like Scream is so refreshing is because like Tyler said earlier especially with Scream every move feels intentional like every line like every shot everything feels like a director being like, I've been in horror for decades. I'm going to create my own kind of story and like, fuck what the conventions are. Like, I think that's the one thing that stuck out to me, like making a camp slasher film after Friday the 13th, part one, and especially part two, like anything that came out around that time, Jess was kind of trying to follow the formula that worked uh, while maybe adding something new. But it's, it's just, I don't know, it's really hard. <laughs> that's yeah, kind yeah. of an answer. That's a direction of an answer.
2: <laughs> after hearing you say that, I wish i put happy death day on my my history
0: oh yes so yeah of actually fits too. really
2: well what you said yeah
0: yeah no I guess maybe it's just a call to break free of conventions both like in the no. genre and I think the more emotional heart is to not be afraid to break convention in your own life and to struck out on your own path kind of vibe it sounds cheesy but I think the, the film does nail that at least
2: what movie would you like to get sucked into oh god <laughs> I'm only saying that because you made me think of it when you said you were to accept accepting to scream. I need a minute to think about it. I'm trying to think of one where I wouldn't get killed in like 15
0: minutes. <laughs> I know, right? God. I wanna. <laughs> I really think it'd be delightful to get like sassed by Gail Weathers, like to just be told off by her. So probably scream. <laughs> I would sacrifice my life to get like really burned <laughs> by Gail Weathers. <laughs> <laughs> And it'll be okay, because I can just think of a better response to the next time the loop restarts.
1: <laughs> That's true, yeah. I kind of have to agree with that, just considering that, I don't know, I, I just have such a love for Wes Craven. He's definitely my favorite horror movie director. And, uh, you know, being able to permanently be a part of something that he created uh would be pretty incredible
0: what about you ryan where would you want to get sucked into can't blood bat like,
2: i'm gonna fall into peer pressure and also come to scream and i'm just gonna steal a car and drive right out of woodsboro
0: that's, that's pretty funny You're drive
1: cross country you can't do that remember someone in scream five tried to tried to get oh, the hell out of woodsboro yeah that. that's true
0: they'll burn I you would back die like
2: them <laughs> <laughs> i would die like the person in scream five <laughs> did your question pull to you why do we have so many meta slashers and so few meta other films? At least in terms of horror. I have a pretty, I think, easy
1: answer for that. And I think it's just because meta often works best when um, it, it's kind of self-referential, you know, wink and nod, poke fun at the genre. And the the easiest target for that is the slasher film because mm-hmm. I don't think there are as many like celebrated and well recognized tropes in like a haunted house movie, for example. There yeah. are certainly things you'll see, but there, you know, there isn't like the rule book, the unofficial rule book that fans have have kind of created. So I, I think slasher films just lend themselves to that much more so than other film types. But with that said you know, perhaps maybe that's a sweet spot that needs to be targeted is kind of the Mm -hmm. self-referential haunted house film or the self-referential, I don't know, like slow burn horror film or, you know, some other type of the self-referential, you know, uh, satanic cult film. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think, what was the movie, the Chelsea Stardust movie about the pizza delivery driver? Satanic Um, Panic. Yeah, that had some definite kind of like meta- energy to it i think and and it wasn't a slasher film and, and it was great
0: yeah i think you hit the nail on the head i think that and like box office successes of movies make it easy to cash in and convince producers to like throw money if you're like it's something people will see they've seen it before we have a track record which is like my cynical answer <laughs> like yeah. how urban legends got made <laughs> like uh, <laughs> but yeah no i think i think it's a lot to do what tyler said so
2: yeah um, I just want to add to your answer, Cass, that box office and budget. I think it costs very little to make a slasher movie.
0: Yeah, there's one uh, thing as
2: compared to like a haunted house movie where you need a ghost.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I want. I actually thought of, I don't know if it counts because it's definitely not horror, but Clue, like the the movie Clue, That's te- I would argue that's technically like a meta thriller because everyone's getting killed and it's a bit of a whodunit, but it's a movie that's also very much aware of itself that literally serves you up different endings that being said, i think i would love to see other meta movies that aren't just slashers and that'd be really cool
1: yeah agreed
0: well this was lovely thank you so much for giving us yeah. your time <laughs>
1: thank, thank you, you so much guys it was so nice to see both of you take thanks, care you and right. uh i hope we can do it again sometime
0: yeah Seems i love good. that thanks for listening and tune in next month when we talk all about haunted houses with, you guessed it, 1959's House on Haunted Hill, and an indie darling called The Deep House. Until then, like, review, share, <laughs> all the podcast things, and go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Harhangover underscore. And in the meanwhile, watch out for surprise pools of acid in your basements. Bye, y'all.